Welcome to the Doctors In Podcast, where we talk about healthcare topics with healthcare students just like us. This is Nathan Seberg here with my co-host Ben Martin. Today we're talking with Aaron Sullivan, a third-year medical student, about the prevalence of herpes and just breaking the stigma around talking about sexually transmitted infections. Welcome, Aaron. Hi. All right, so you wrote us a great article for this month about um, your topic, and I just want you to go ahead and start by telling us a little bit more about it. Sure. So the article I wrote is about oral and genital herpes, the viruses that cause them, um, and I cover information that I think is beneficial for the public and especially a college student population to know. Sweet. Thank you. So it's been a year since I took pathology personally. <laughs> um, so can you start by just kind of explaining the difference between HSV1 and 2 um, and how they're kind of distinctly transmitted? Yeah. So HSV1 and HSV2, so first it stands for herpes simplex virus 1 and 2. Um, they're just different types of essentially the same virus. They just have different traits. So HSV1 um, is more fitted to infect the epithelium or the skin around the mouth and the lip area. HSV2 is better fitted to infect the skin around the genitals and the rectum. And that's the main difference for um, pathology or the skin that's infected with the virus. Um, this can happen um, just through contact with saliva, for example. Example. So that's why there can be transmission to babies from grandma kissing their, their forehead um, or children in daycare. Um, and HSV2 is primarily transmitted through t uh, different types of sexual contact, oral, genital, 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 or genital rectal, for example. And caveat there is HSV1 is becoming more uh, prevalent in genital herpes, so then that is usually caused through oral genital sexual contact. Gotcha. So that's a great summary, I think, of how these are transmitted and kind of the difference between the two. Can you expand on that and talk about some of the common symptoms um, in HSV and how this might be different in HSV 1 and 2, and then how these symptoms can kind of notify us when we might have the virus and need to take steps? Sure. So the first symptoms you, you would have is you would develop uh, blisters or uh, what we call vesicles, um, either around the mouth or in the, on the genitals or rectal area. And these are painful. Uh, they can burst and become ulcers. And they generally last one to two weeks. Um, the first time you have an outbreak, uh, there can be flu-like symptoms that go along with that. So fever, malaise, generally not feeling good. Um, additionally, if you have recurrence, a lot of people experience um, right before, like in the day or hours preceding the appearance of the vesicles, a burning or tingling sensation on the skin. Um, if you, ha if you have um, a lesion that you think might be HSV, um, you can just go to urgent care, student health, uh, Planned Parenthood, or your primary care provider if you can get in the same day um, to get tested. Yeah, thanks. Can you tell us a little bit more about just kind of the demographics of herpes and HSV? Um, it's a common age group that's usually infected gender-wise, and then just in general, kind of percentage of the population are we dealing with here? 
For sure. So as with any uh, lifelong infection, such as herpes, uh, prevalence increases with age. So the longer you've been on Earth, the more likely you are to have come in contact with herpes and the more likely you are to have it. So for example, uh, with HSV-1, uh, there was some uh, data from the CDC um, in 2016, uh, or they compared different age, the prevalence of HSE-1 in different age groups. Teenagers, 14 to 19, prevalence was 27%, versus the 40 to 49-year-old age group, the prevalence was 60%. So more than doubled um, between those age groups, and then 20s and 30s it had just steadily climbed. And that just has to do with exposure and just being a human and being on Earth. WHO, um, this was also the same time frame around 2016, uh, they estimated that 3.7 billion people had HSV-1 infections. So for context, that's 67% of the world's population aged 0 to 49, so two-thirds of the population. If you add in the estimated 500 million people who they estimate have HSV-2 infections, that's another 13.2% of the population aged 15 to 49. That gets you to 80% of the population in that age group that has some type of herpes infection. Uh, Gender-wise, uh, we're gonna split hairs for a second, just warning you. Uh, HSV-1, historically has been considered like gender equivocal because it was causing predominantly oral herpes. And now because it's causing more genital herpes, there is a difference uh, between men and women uh, or vaginas and penises. Uh, I try not to conflate those two, but a lot of the data does, unfortunately. Uh, so historically, HSC one no difference. HSV-2 is more common in people with vulvas, vaginas, because of there is a higher anatomic susceptibility. That's the theory. And there, it's more likely to be spread from someone with a penis to someone with a vagina during penile vaginal intercourse. So those numbers in the U.S., again, same time period around 2016, uh, was 16% of women and 8% of men among 14 to 49-year-olds had HSV-2 infections. So back to HSV-1, there used, used to be equivocal, but now there's data from the CDC that estimates it's 51% of women have HSV-1 and 45% of men have HSV-1. Um, so we're seeing a little bit more of a gender difference with HSV-1 because it's causing more genital herpes now. Wow, I think those stats are really important and that's great that you shared them because I think they're really powerful to tell us just how many people have herpes. And, you know, we don't, you know, hear of, you know, two thirds of the population having herpes. And so this, you know, kind of raises the question, are there always symptoms with herpes when you get them? And can herpes lie dormant in people? And if, actually it's kind of an added question, if they are dormant, can you still spread them? Um, great question. So by far the most common presentation of a herpes infection is having no symptoms and never having symptoms. So uh, up to 90% of HSV-2 infections are asymptomatic and up to 80% of HSV-1 
infections are asymptomatic. So we're talking 80-90% of people that have HSV 1 or 2 have no symptoms and probably won't know because we don't test for it uh, routinely. Uh, many people with um, HSV 1 are uh, asymptomatic, or HSV 1 or HSV 2, are asymptomatic for years and then develop symptoms. So it is. I think it's important to remember that it's it's different than like gonorrhea, chlamydia, bacterial um, STIs, where you might not present with the infection until years after you were exposed. So it is not necessarily your current or most recent sexual partner that exposed you to the virus, and this can cause problems, psychological distress when say you're married and suddenly you develop genital herpes and you thought you were in a monogamous relationship for 10 years and now you're, want, you're wondering if your partner cheated on you and I can't speak to, to that but there is definitely a, a very good possibility that you already had a dormant HSV infection that just did not manifest until that time and it can be very distressing to people to be accused of of giving someone herpes. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that we don't know necessarily when you were exposed or when you uh, actually got that initial HSV infection. That uh, brings me back to, have you seen The Office? Yes, a Where lot. Michael. <laughs> oh! <laughs> a pimple on his mouth. And he calls all his past lovers. And says they herpes. <laughs> I have herpes. <laughs> I think that is very reminiscent of that exact episode for me. It it's, ended up being a pimple, too. Right, it ended up being a pimple. I have a sexual infection. H. R. So, yeah, not necessarily the most recent. Right. <laughs> you don't have to, like, sequentially contact people right. from your past. <laughs> so, in terms of treatment. Sure. Um, what are some common treatments for herpes symptomatically and then just in general prevention wise? We always want to kind of prevent it before we get there. So both treatment and prevention, what are our two go-tos? I'll start with uh, chronologically. So prevention, uh, barrier protection, condoms, always, always, always. Um, this has been drilled into our heads at this point. Uh, even if there are no active lesions, uh, people can sp uh, shed the virus asymptomatically. Uh, so you should always be using barrier protection, even if there are no symptoms. And if a partner or yourself has active lesions, um, avoid contact with that area. So if there are, if you have cold sores or oral herpes, an outbreak, avoid kissing. If you have a genital herpes outbreak, avoid sexual contact until those have uh, lesions have crusted over and then therefore become far less um, infectious but still you can be infectious at any time because of that asymptomatic shedding treatment some prescriptions we can um, provide if you go to a healthcare provider are there are some antiviral pills the most common are acyclovir and valacyclovir there's two ways to take these medications episodic and suppressive so episodic is you feel a her, uh, you know, a herpes lesion coming on, you feel that burning, and you say, okay, I'm going to take my, you know, three days or five days, or whatever you've decided with your PCP of acyclovir. And you, you take it reflexively as a response to 
getting symptoms. Suppressive therapy is something you take every day to prevent the occurrence of outbreaks. And it can also, if you have a breakthrough, both of these uh, types of therapy will reduce symptoms, um, severity, and duration. Um, additionally, suppressive therapy can reduce transmission between discordant couples. So someone who has herpes and someone who doesn't, there is a potential benefit of suppressive therapy there. Um, a non-prescription option is Abriva. It's the uh, topical antiviral that is FDA approved to shorten the duration of symptoms, works better if you put it on earlier um, in the kind of outbreak. Um, but it is important to note that you do not necessarily need any treatment, uh, particularly if you have uh, rare outbreaks, say one or two a year, mild symptoms, you do not need treatment if you don't want it. Um, and that really it's, it's, for, it's symptomatic essentially. So you don't necessarily need any treatment. Awesome, thank you. Um, so you, we talked about how um, some of the lesions around the mouth are caused in herpes. And I think this is an important distinction that you make in your article, but I think it's important we talk about here, um, the difference between different types of lesions around the mouth. So um, we just talked about in the office pimples, um, but also you talked about canker sores, and there's a difference between those and cold sores and how they can appear to be the same thing. Can you talk about how they're not the same thing and are caused by very different reasons? This is a very interesting misconception that I have started hearing more in the past couple of years. And I confirmed it with uh, just asking around, like, have you heard this misconception? And yeah, like, this is, a, this is definitely a misconception that missed me in my uh, pubescent years, but I've, but I've encountered it. Uh, so I think it's important. Uh, canker sores are, again, they are ulcers so I can around the mouth so I can see in that area so I can see how people would confuse them. But they happen more inside the mouth. So if you, uh, say, bite your cheek, one day and then the next day it's painful, that's a canker sore. So they happen in response to trauma, uh, certain vitamin deficiencies such as folate, uh, irritating spicy food, for example. They're not caused by any virus or any bacteria. They're not infectious. Um, they are just annoying. <laughs> and versus, uh, you know, herpes, cold sores happen on the outside where they're visible um, and are caused by HSV 1 and 2. Or one, if it's if it's oral. Looking forward to some canker sore season and as uh, a tomatoes, you know. Oh yeah. Fresh fruit. <laughs> yeah, it's that good acidic burn in there. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a nice one. And you bite it and it just keeps <laughs> popping and up. It just burns. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody suspects that they have HSV, they're symptomatic. Um, we talked about you know going to your PCP if you can get in, going to student health. Is that the best way to kind of go out getting tested and receiving treatment? Yeah, so I think the best way is if you have symptoms, going to student health, uh, urgent care, a free clinic, your PCP, same day or the next day um, is the best because they can do a swab and they can do either a culture or a PCR test where they look for the viral DNA. And it's most accurate in the first 48 hours, which is why I say go in the first day or two of symptoms. Um, and then that can confirm your diagnosis and direct your treatment um, if, if you would like that. Um, you can also get a blood test at any time for the antibody for HSV 1 and 2. I will say it is not recommended. It's not 
it's not universally recommended. It's not usually covered by insurance. It doesn't tell you where you were infected. So if you have HSV1 antibodies, you aren't you don't know if it's you know an oral or a genital, and you also don't know if you'll ever develop symptoms. But some people want that information, and so I think um, you can you are absolutely. Uh, you can absolutely ask for that if that's the if that's information that you want. So um, herpes, along with many other STIs, uh, do carry a heavy stigma. Um, and I want to ask, how can we help destigmatize these um, kinds of diseases? And I know it's kind of a tough question. I'm not asking you to solve destigmatization, <laughs> but what are just some some small things we can do to you know help the stigma around these? I think that. As with any stigma, you everyone should start with themselves. So deconstruct your biases and preconceptions. We were all given uh, some sort of sexual education before we came to college. You know, some of it may have been more biased than others. And you know, like I feel like I had a pretty biased edu sexual education, and so I had to deconstruct. Uh, those those preconceptions that I had um, and I like to do that through intellectualization so just fact-finding looking at the data uh, doing research like in, doing research into like articles like I have lots of data here uh, I like to intellectualize these problems to help look at it more objectively rather than emotionally and subjectively and that's helped with like my with my personal biases a lot and then other things you can do outside of yourself, and this is so hard to ask of people, but if you hear a conversation that's like about someone else's STI, because I've heard these conversations on our campus, and it's pretty upsetting. And if you have if you have the bravery, you know, interrupt them and be like, hey, that's not your information to share. Like, or if you are less, if you want to be more, uh, say this. If you would, subtle. Yeah, if you want to be more subtle, go in and change the topic. Go change the subject. Just get it away from that because it's really not a necessary conversation for people to be having, especially if it's somewhere where you're overhearing a conversation and it definitely doesn't need to happen right there. Um, so that's what I have challenged myself to do um, after hearing some conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. Just that kind of brings us full circle back to the beginning of your article where we kind of talked about, um, well, you kind of talked about, I didn't do any of that. Um, just that experience of hearing, you know, herpes for the first time when you're in school and that kind of, it's that big cloud in the room, somebody brings it up. My goal is for there to be no stigma around any SCIs, um, but right now we're focusing on herpes. So no stigma around herpes, um, ideally. I think we, learn that shame uh in our like education i def my education my sex like sex ed when i was growing up was biased it was i i believe meant to instill fear uh and it was it just makes you more just afraid of of stis and sex without giving you the knowledge to protect yourself so i want people to empower themselves and I want to empower people to protect themselves and feel confident, you know, going seeking medical care when they feel they need it for an STI and not feeling that shame because 
that shame can cause people delaying medical care, people not being open with their providers, and it's ultimately not cultivating safety. And that's what I really want is for people to be safe and feel comfortable seeking care and being honest with their healthcare providers. I think that's a great a great point you made with like um, sex ed in schools and how they you know make it out to be like a fearful thing like these STIs are bad and they're um, such a you know they they make it up to be a really bad thing if you get them to you know create fear in you. I think that then translates to how we view people who end up getting these is that they have somehow done something wrong, mm-hmm. which is definitely something that needs Not to be. True. Yeah, exactly. Fixed in the future. So a final question for you, or almost a final question. Um, what's one take-home message you have for the student population about herpes? Herpes is much more prevalent than a lot of people know. And we shouldn't be using it against people to put them down, either by insinuating that they have it to insult them or by using knowledge that they do have it against them. Um, it's extremely common. More people have it than don't. Uh, so, and a lot of people have it and don't know it. Awesome. Well, we have one more surprise question for you. It's an easy one, though. Okay. You know, me? I don't remember it. So, we, uh, <laughs> we've, we've been doing, like, a, like a fun question at the end. Okay. And we've, we've decided to change it. We've, we're, we're doing a new one. because It's we've, a pilot, we've kind pilot of, question. We beat right it here. to death, and so now yeah. we have a new question. I'm going to try and remember it because I don't have it written down. Um, I think it was, which dystopian do you think you would do the best in? Okay. Hunger Games. Hopefully you've seen some of these. <laughs> Hunger Games. Um, it was Mad Max. Yeah. And The Walking Dead. Oh, The Walking Dead. Dead. Okay. Yes. I have seen trailers for Mad Max. <laughs> oh, so good. You have to go and watch it. <laughs> Fantastic movie. I have... Not seen The Walking Dead either. <laughs> That's just zombies. Just, just it's zombies. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've seen parts of it. Um, okay, well, Hunger Games, just like, I'm thinking odds. Uh-huh. And I don't know about the odds of Mad Max. The odds of the Hunger Games are quite poor. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like the odds of Walking Dead is quite poor. I would say probably The Walking Dead, because I think I would do better in a team. Oh. And I have more. I have things to bring to the table of yeah. medical knowledge and and skills that I can bring to the table that aren't necessarily uh, inherent to my own in, like immediate survival. Mm-hmm. So if I could team up with people and I could help them with their medical problems and keep them alive and they keep me alive, that would work better for me. That's good. Yeah, then other people just keep you alive because they're like, well, we need a doctor. <laughs> That's true. It's a good one. <laughs> Plus, I don't want to kill people, so the Hunger Games would not be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us. Um, It's always important to kind of have these conversations first, just so we can help other people kind of deal with their issues around having these conversations. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.